Hi, what the health tech listeners. I'm your host this week, Paul Johnson. Um, this is the podcast where we uh, tackle some of the trending topics, ideas and best practice within health and social care. This week, we're speaking to Mark Fuster, Head of Product and Innovation at Radar Healthcare. Mark started his career 18 years ago and has worked across the management product development, product management, business intelligence, amongst stuff, other things. Stuff. Stuff. He's done some stuff. He's got proven experience in delivering transformational business change across both startups and large PLCs and has worked for Radar Healthcare for the past four years. Uh-huh. Feels like longer. Helping share our product as, and bringing it into what it is today. Mark's focus is now on the future, bringing ideas from our partners and teams to life and looking at what innovation is to come in the industry. Outside of work, Mark loves traveling, trekking and nature, mostly bird watching. He also enjoys music, <laughs> art, reading and gaming and spends his time at gigs across the country. Hi, Mark. Welcome to What The Health Tech. Thank you, Paul. Okay, so we'll get into a few questions. That's okay, Mark. So in March, we held a roundtable discussion mm-hmm. all about how, with so many ideas and emerging technologies in the NHS, um, how we support staff in adopting these exciting opportunities. We brought together key stakeholders involved the digitization within the NHS to hear their experience of innovation, how it happens, the barriers, what the NHS can learn. So, Mark, I wanted to get your opinion on some of the discussions and one of the um, key messages that stuck with me that came out um, from one of the roundtable sessions. And we're just going to play that clip now. As a clinician, you can tend to help one person at a time. The informatics community, the digital community can help thousands at a time. This is why it is the space we've got to be in. That's quite a strong message and something I think everybody should hear. Um, you know, I mean, really a poignant message is saying, you know, a, a clinician can save a life, yeah. but the IT community can save thousands. So, it'd be, you know, it'd be great to get your views and your take on how we go about that. What do you see the barriers being? Um, yeah, I agree. It's an interesting point. I think it's more the, the broad kind of concept of technology in healthcare. So I know we kind of talk about this quite a lot internally at Radar, but everything from you know, the information that's been captured. So, you know, we've been speaking to people like the NRLS um, recently about some of the information they're capturing right the way through to things like wearables. So I think the way technology can help is more around, obviously at the point of care, you've got technology that, that you know, helps look after a patient or might kind of track vitals and things like that. But if you rewind it and think about the technology that's coming, especially the types of things we use every day, like your phone, wearables that people are now using, that can help predict the onset of perhaps you know some disease or something that i might have so the technology there actually being something that helps prevent that person going into hospital and stops them having to you know draw on the on the health service or maybe draw on it in a, in a slightly different way so that technology if used properly probably can help save people's lives because you get in an earlier you know you're intervening at an early point in their care rather than waiting for whatever it is that they end up being in hospital for so it's about prevention rather than treatment i guess yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a really good point because I think quite often people are looking for the innovation, the sexy tech within the hospital setting. Yeah. So from what you're saying there, it is actually there is a genuine opportunity to apply technology to that prevention, stopping people actually developing chronic conditions, getting into hospital. I think if you look at, if you look at tech in hospitals, especially kind of clinical tech, it, it, it is predominantly 
state-of-the-art cutting edge, obviously kind of depending on things like budgets and whatever, but there's a, there's, they've always been really good at innovating in terms of the, the pieces of equipment that would be used in that kind of hospital environment or that care environment. Um, and I think it's just how do you utilise almost the way technology is trending and going and how do you kind of bring that into care and how do you bring that into a patient's journey? You know, the, the, the devices we're using on a day-to-day basis can help inform how to deliver care to somebody if, you, if you're using them properly and expand that into the Internet of Things and all the different kind of pieces of information you might capture from things within the home. Um, that, again, you know, if that information is used properly, can help build a picture of an individual right the way through to how active they are, to, you know, like, as I say, you know, what's going on with your blood pressure, your heart rate, oxygen levels, all that type of stuff. So going back to the barrier kind of question then, yeah. so it would seem that social care has a, you know, signif- there's a significant opportunity here for social care. And something that came up in the roundtables again was that communication between social care, the NHS and, that in- and those interactions, whether it be through technology or people. Yeah. So if... I suppose, what are the barriers then within social care to allow all that monitoring and to ensure it's interoperable with the NHS? Is it money? Is it... I mean, it's all, it, all, it, it almost always comes down to money, doesn't it, at some point yeah. or other, where, you know, especially kind of social care, can you afford to, you know, kit yourself out with all this fancy fancy new equipment? Um, but I think it's just a lack of that big picture view. And it, because everything's siloed, because there is no overarching vision of what a patient's care should look like from kind of cradle to grave and the route to purchase technology the you know is that technology fit for purpose all the the different providers like us out there who are providing different pieces of equipment how do you pick the right thing i think the the barriers are more around the procurement if you like of making sure you're getting the right thing rather than the Mm -hmm. technology itself if that makes sense yeah no no it does i think it is this it is highlighting this perceived divide with social care and the NHS, because, I mean, this is me speaking, not so yeah. much coming from a round table, but it always, you know, that the poor relation in healthcare is sometimes perceived to be social care, yet it has the opportunity to have the greatest impact. And if you looked at it holistically, yeah. you would stop things going wrong so that you Absolutely. don't have to spend lots of money to fix them, which is kind of what you're saying about the expensive super high techies in the hospital, because that's where it's needed to, ser- to save the lives. But prevention... Stopping yeah. those people getting to that stage. And again, personal viewpoint is we measure the wrong stuff. We, we, we measure where the money goes and we measure return on investment for want of a better way of describing it. And it's all about waiting times and how long did it, it's not about did this person receive good care or not. And if you, if you start with that and then work your way back through it, then you would say, well, actually the best way to look after this person is to keep them in the home and investing in some technology that monitors them in home and, checks their RI and gives them, I don't know, a video link into a carer, you know, whatever that piece of technology is, I pretty much guarantee that's going to be cheaper than treating them in a hospital at some point. And then them leaving hospital, you know, having, you know, been, been in a bed for six weeks and then they go home and they have a fall and then they're back in hospital again and you start that vicious cycle. Of, I think it, it is, it's, it, it's, there's not going to be news to anyone, but it, it's a, it, we, it's a fundamental problem in how we picture how we deliver healthcare to people. We don't think of the patient outcome. I think it's it's not just the outcome as well, because the other thing that always cares me, again, getting into personal (laughs) viewpoints, but I kind of get 
frustrate sometimes that we just say, we straight away move to the point of patient, the name patient. Yes. Actually, let's, why don't we actually try and prevent somebody becoming a patient? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just outcomes, it's quality of life, which again, technology has a potential part to play in improving people's quality of life. And giving people responsibility, not so much for their own healthcare, but almost helping them make the right choices and things like that. So if you think of how you inform the population is probably the wrong word, but how you inform individuals about the best way to look after themselves and things like that and incentivize them. You know, if you can stop, if you can, if you can teach people why, you know, good diet's important, exercise is important, you know, keeping yourself active physically and mentally is important. That again is going to reduce ultimately how you're going to end up d- delivering care to people. Because you, you should end up delivering less care because people are fitter and healthier. It's, it's that it's, it's, it's the whole system. It's everything yeah. from, from, Almost how you teach people right the way through to how you end up using tech and things like that to monitor it. We probably should, uh, well, I say we probably, the government and policy (laughs) should listen to some of the commercial entities around some of the healthcare apps and where you are incentivised to exercise, you get discounts on healthy foods because they recognise that actually because they're delivering private healthcare, that by keeping you healthy, giving you a better quality of life, in actual fact, they benefit directly, so... I mean, we're unique of, in the NHS. So it's the same we've got model, the NHS. Isn't it, really. Yeah. yeah. If you're in in yeah. the US, well, I'm going to reduce my insurance yeah. premium by evidence into you. I don't smoke. I exercise well. Blah 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 blah. And you're paying it. You're yeah. paying yeah. less money. Something that comes up quite often, not just in the roundtables, but um, you know, technology can't replace people. Yep. You know, so how do you see? You know, how, how would technology complement? And when people say that it's all down to people, um, you know, that face to face interactions, how can we? supplement and complement that that side of things i mean i i, I agree it is, it is it's people process technology and technology should just be the enabler for the other two so you don't lose the human element if you like it should just there be to, to be supportive so you know again personal view you don't want to suddenly say well everything's got to be online and nobody ever sees a doctor again unless it's over video and all that kind of stuff it, it, it's you use the technology at the right times so it's a bit like when you're giving you know when you're probably a bit of a techie word, but surfacing information to people. So use tech at the appropriate time within that patient's journey or within whatever the, you know, interaction you have with them. It might be the right thing to just pick up the phone to them and say, you know, whatever it is, give them an update on, on, you know, a a booking or test results, whatever that looks like, or send them a text or do an online um, call with them. Uh, But then sometimes it's, you want that face-to-face element, you know, ultimately I'm not a clinician or, you know, but doctor, it's it's a personal thing. It's a one-to-one interaction between yeah. the, you, you as a doctor or clinician and the person you end up give, delivering that care to. I think it comes back to that, you know, we were talking about sexy, you know, innovative, this, you know, you know, top technology and things like that. Actually, the biggest benefits can be derived from the most simplest of things in that commodity activity because it yeah, occurs yeah. to me that technology can pay the p- part of reducing this manual processes. So therefore, if we bring some automation through technology, then that's going to give time so that people can spend time with patients. Yeah, and do the right, and, and all about that outcome for that individual. In essence, you don't want to be in hospital and a robot doctor turns up and kind of, yeah. hello, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you, you still want that interaction with people, don't you? You know, you yeah. want to know there's somebody there who's literally looking after you. Yeah. 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 It's just use it at the right time. And so people process and technology is just to help. Yeah, yeah. I think just on the people thing, just before we move off that is, is I think it's inclusion of everybody in the ecosystem as well that yeah. I think sometimes lacks that 
when care pathways are being designed and things like that, do they always have the patient at the, you know, is it patient centric? Well, we know it's, is it's not, is it? It's, it's yeah. evolving yeah. around that. And so I think there's lessons for everybody to learn, you know, that having that patient at the heart of things and that mapping that whole pathway and including prevention, then that's got to be important as well. Yeah. And that, that patient experience of, you kind of, you know, a recent example of someone I know who's, who got diagnosed with cancer and was basically battered from pillar to post because the information wasn't shared between the different kind of local, you know, the different trusts who were looking after that, that, that person. And so the care got delayed. They were, they were basically going, I have no idea what's going on. And, and as that, as a patient experience, I mean, it's not good enough, is it? And that's, that's a perfect example of how technology should be helping because why do they not know what the other one's doing? Why isn't there a single patient record which is available for that individual to go, I want to book an appointment. We've just put you an appointment. Here it is. Here's what you've seen. We've just done your test results. Here's what your test results are. I mean, that's not rocket science, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now that we've, you and I have solved all the problems of the health and social care world in the UK. Yeah. yeah. Getting a bit more specific in terms of, but keeping on the people theme. Yeah. So... Within Radar Healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, you know, something that, you know, we pride ourselves on is that, you know, user-centred focus, ensuring that people are part of the process. Can you talk a little bit ha- what that actually means when we say person-centred design? What What's the process and how do you apply that when you're defining what the next innovation or how the system's going to work as it may be? Yeah, I guess for us... It's user centered design, so it's about it's about kind of bringing those people in at the at the start of the journey to develop the product, which I guess includes understanding the, the starting point is what problem are you try to fix, and in the nicest sense, understanding what that problem is comes from them, not us. We are, you know we don't do it, we don't we, we don't we don't do that as a job, we don't live in that environment. Um, so it's it's that around. Well, actually, what what are we trying to fix here? What's the, what's the what's the problem? And then as part of that journey of developing a product, it's understanding, well, if we did this, would this fix your problem? And, and it would it fix it in an efficient way right the way through to us then developing the tech that does that and then involving them in the design of it. So right the way right the way through to almost like prototyping where I'm saying to, you know, Paul, you've said to me, oh, I've got this problem what I want to fix. And we go, well, look, we've designed this thing. Do you think this is the sort of thing that would help you? And you go, well, no, that doesn't quite work. Or actually you've completely missed the point or you've got the process wrong. And it's almost that iterative cycle of we're all we're always kind of ensuring that what we're doing is is put back through you as that customer or user to help inform the next bit of development that we do. And that, as I say, involves a design session, so we have workshops and things like that, right the way through to what we call betas. So that'd be, as I say, you know, is is we've we've built a little bit of something here, Paul. Why do you have a play around with it? See if it works for you. And that helps ensure that when we develop something, you know, don't get me wrong, we don't always get it right, but it's it's much closer to solving that problem and delivering the value sooner as well. So it makes sure that actually when we develop something, we you know, if your if your problem is X and actually it's really quick for us to fix 80% of that problem, we don't try and wait forever to fix the 100%. We go, look, you know, this will fix most of your problem. Here you go. And it's that kind of ethos. And then from a usability point of view, that also helps with, well, this button's in the wrong place. It'd be easy if I clicked here and, you know, I don't understand these things and what you're showing me. Right. I suppose, just to be clear, I suppose, as well as this is all derived off the back of a core platform and functionality that satisfies, you know, what percentage of people's general requirements. And then is it development? Is it configuration? What What's, what's making these 
you know, solving these actual problems? Um, I mean, for us, it can be different. It could be an entirely new module. It could be something where we're building something specific to answer a, a, a problem that, you know, maybe it's kind of similar to what we do at the minute in terms of kind of compatible with the product. Or it could be, as you say, we 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 understand that they've got a you know a problem that they need to fix, and so we configure our platform in the way it can be configured to just answer that specific specific problem. So obviously, the way we work um, is the way the product works. Is it is almost like a toolkit that you can then kind of configure to fix different problems within an organisation, obviously at the minute, healthcare. So again, from the round table, um, systems and how systems speak to each other, you know, that that came up a few times and uh, I just want to play a clip here. We are implementing innovation at ICS levels and we are working with systems who want to push this forward. So yeah, we're taking the innovations that Will's doing and we are scaling them, but that has to now sit within the footprint of the digital maturity or the digital plan for the ICS. Because what we need need to do to enable what Ridian wants to do, so that when you seize that patient to have that one record, we need all these systems to talk to each other, so we can't have the Wild West anymore. Yeah, we need to feed that information so the clinicians have that information at their fingertips when they need to consult with a with a, with a patient, yeah. or actually when they need to make a decision about referring that patient somewhere else. So we're not making unnecessary referrals, and each ICS is going to do that differently. The cancer networks are going to have their own network within the network as well. So as well as being part of an ICS, they're going to be part of a national cancer network. So we ensure we can get the best care for these patients, these highly specialist centres, which the Christie's one. You know, which the Marsden's another one, you know, you've got, who specialise in really rare forms of cancer. So you know what the referral pathway is now. Yeah. So there's going to be systems within systems as well. Yeah, so I just start coming on that. Um, patients with cancer also have heart disease, also have mm-hmm. diabetes, also right? And unless we take a patient-centric view of care rather than an organisation-centric view of care, we will continue to make the same mistakes. Yeah. Okay. So Ridian makes a very interesting point here. It's this interoperability. It's not that so we've got multiple organisations, we've got networks, you've got, you know, local authorities, we've got NHS, so we've got all these different entities. Um, and then you've got from a how do you get that patient-centric data to be shared amongst all of that ecosystem? Uh, it'd be interesting to get your kind of views on what's, how should systems be built? You know, what, when we say interoperable, what does that actually mean? Yeah. You know, from, from your perspective. Um, I mean, there's a few bits in there. First, so technically there's obviously standards so like fire HL seven, that type of thing where you're saying, actually this thing that I procure, this thing I buy has the capability to then integrate with something else. That doesn't necessarily mean that then that integration then happens. So I think it's part of how you procure something if, if part of that procurement is you fundamentally need this thing to integrate with X, Y, and Z, then that should be what part of whatever that, whatever that process is. And perhaps you need evidence that that actually is going to happen rather than you know, ticking it at first value that, yes, well, yeah, we can integrate with X, Y, and Z. Actually, can you integrate with X, Y, and Z? And I think the standards and a way to evidence as suppliers that we meet those standards. So things like DTAC, I think, is coming. Like that, that type of thing where you've got you've got a way of helping make sure that whoever's in charge of procurement is making making those right decisions. But I think it, it's probably bigger than that again in the sense of in the NHS especially, you've got all of these independent trusts who've also got independent procurement teams who don't necessarily have, or there isn't a big picture in terms of, well, what actually, what are we doing collectively to implement technology? 
So this trust merges with another, merges with another trust, and this one's got one electronic patient record. This one doesn't have one, but it's just about to procure another, and it, it and then you, they both fit together, and suddenly the two things are incompatible with each other. I mean, that shouldn't happen. You know, in the nicest sense, if there's if there's no communication about what things are being bought and for what reason, and there's no kind of overarching vision on what we're we trying to do, then you're always going to just bump up against issues where people have bought the wrong thing, for want of a better way of describing it. Is that, a, is that an educational thing then? Because so, one of the things that always occurs to me is that when, when we start a partnership with a care organisation, quite yeah. often it's people on the front line that are driving that demand. Um, and so when people are procuring these lots of different systems because they might be solving other problems, and then... So is it an education thing to procure right through the organisation yeah, from procurement to ensuring? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's it's. And where, where does that responsibility sit within the care organisation? It's again, I think I, I bring it up again personal view. I, I bring it up a level. If if there's kind of a national standard that any supplier needs to adhere to, and that concept of interoperability, you need to be able to have evidence you can you can do it. So you know if you, if if two EPR systems have to integrate with each other, then evidence it. And then, you know, you can be safe in the knowledge that if I buy X, it's going to integrate with Y. Yeah. Something I, I brought up at the, I mentioned at the roundtable was, um, again, it's about this communication, ensuring that we've got these better established communication lines mm-hmm. and understanding the impacts that social care, the challenges they have and how they impact on the NHS. I'm just going to play a short clip from Kate. Um, she raises some interesting points. So, yeah, so please, I'm really Kate. excited about the future. And I think we've got a period at the moment as we're coming out of COVID, and if we don't grab it, yeah. all the barriers will come in. And I think, you know, I said about speculative design, you know, um, going into hospital is not good for you, full stop. Yeah. You've got an, an, old, an elderly person, you put them in the hospital and, you know, reduce mobility, deconditioning, hospital-acquired deconditioning. Yeah. And that comes in with a whole raft of things, you know, about perverse incentives. You know, we monitor falls, but we don't monitor deconditioning. And, you know, the impact of that might mean that a patient never gets to go home again. And, you know, that's their home. Nobody goes on holiday and expects never to see their house again. But that's what can happen to an elderly person if they're going to hospital unnecessarily. (laughs) So I think, you know, I'm excited. You know, Mercy Hospital in America is the first virtual whole hospital. And I just think, wow, in the fact that there's so much opportunities that we can do to prevent people going into hospital. And it's also about that kind of what responsibility do we have in that to, um, you know, the health inequalities. And we think about, you know, in London, you might live in deprivation, but you've got lovely, shiny hospitals around the corner in places of rural deprivation. Where's your nearest hospital? You know, is it a big, shiny hospital? And so I just think there's a real thing about using this digital worlds to even things up yeah, and actually your point is very well made because you ask yourself why do you put people in hospitals all right well because the expertise is there the equipment is there and the record is there so if you can move the if you can move the record around because you've digitalized it if you can deliver remote consultation for your diabetic consult or your cardiac consult right then suddenly you don't need that person in that care environment unless they have care needs now if you've got care needs and that is you need to be dressed you need to be washed People need to come and visit your home, all right? And, and that's where we fall over because we don't have that workforce because we, for numerous reasons, we don't value social care as a profession uh, 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 that, that it can deliver. So 
fundamentally, Kate's point there is, you know, how can we stop, especially the older generation, um, ending up in hospital, reduce hospital administrations within elderly care? So it'd be good from a technology perspective. I know we were, you touched on it earlier around yeah, I, I, monitoring patient wearables, those kind of things. Yeah. Do, do you see this? I, I think that's it. Part to yeah, play? yeah, I think that's it. I think it's, you, you want to, where possible, you know, deliver care in, in whatever the best place is for that patient. And in this case, that's at home, I guess, you know, because that's the place where they're comfortable. So the more you can enable that care to be you know, possibly remote or using different pieces of technology to monitor the things that you need to monitor to look after that individual, you know, the, the, the better. And I think the, the other point around kind of social care and, and uh, working with the kind of rest of the healthcare network it's also again, I was at the same event as you and there was lots of speakers, lots of people who were kind of having those conversations. So it feels as if it's starting to, you know, and again, probably the pandemic helped make people speak to each other and kind of start to create some of the, some of these networks and maybe things like the ICSs will help as well. Um, but it's back to don't see it as a disconnected thing because it's not a disconnected thing. It's all part of the same problem. You know, the problem is just looking after an individual, no matter how old they are or where they live in that or where they are in that kind of journey. And that's, I think that's the thing. We, we, we disconnected the two things and, and broke them apart. And now we've got to put them back together again. And that's, that's you know, it's going to be a task. I think technology will help in the sense of making sure people have got the right information at the right time. So when somebody comes out of hospital or in, and in, into a care home, for, for, for example, you've got all the right information and there's no delay in you know, understanding what that person's needs are or even understanding... You know, are, are we the right care home, for example, to take this patient from this particular hospital? You know, we might not be set up to look after their particular needs. Those types of things. The, the way systems can help put somebody in the right place where it's the right place to care for them. I think that'll be that'll be where it can definitely help. I suppose that, that does bring back in the question about inequalities within healthcare. And I'll come on to a second. We'll, we'll play a clip from Owen from the, from the round table. Um, but I suppose... You know, if you look at um, social care, that and, and maybe you, you said that we've kind of pulled them apart and there's the NHS and the, the social care, there's inequalities in social care, i.e. if you are wealthy, have money to pay for a certain level of care, then you can, you know, that, that higher level of care or perceived higher level of care will be delivered. Yeah, It might be that some of that is just cosmetic, so I'm not saying that, you know, there's there's differences in, you know, the quality of care that's been delivered, but there's perceived inequalities there. Whereas if somebody, you know, it, you know, is unable to have access to those kind of funds, then they're going to be receiving kind of that state care. So, yep. you know, there's, there's a levelling up there. But I just wanted to play a, a clip from Owen um, that raises a little bit about inequalities and accessibility for everybody. Uh, I'm coming from it from a completely different uh, yeah, yeah. perspective. So, as I said, so I work for an organisation called the Race and Health Observatory. So you can sort of... Uh, figure out which way I'm going to come from. So one of the things we need to think about as part of these conversations is all the digital technologies that we're going to develop, are they going to benefit everyone? So there's a really fantastic paper that was done by the strategy unit based in the Midlands, which you can look up. So it's it showed that uh, if you live in the most affluent area, you've got access to the latest uh, diagnostics, you've got more access to privately funded NHS care, You've got more access to diagnostics in general, and you've got more access to elective care. So if you look at the richest hospitals, this is where all this is happening. And at times, for uh, if you're coming out with these new technologies, it's easier to go where the energy is 
where the money is and say, you know what, I've got this fantastic idea. If I take it to a well-funded hospital, you can think of anyone, yeah? There's a better chance of getting it done there because it's better funded and everything else. But actually, it might not be where the greatest need is. So at times, that's, that has to be part of the first thing you'd say, okay, right, where is the greatest need? You know, like, as an organization like Radar, you say, okay, look, here's the country, look, how about if we go do something in an area or in a trust where no one is doing anything? You know, let's go and try and try and do it and actually get the biggest benefits. Then the other thing is actually starting to look at uh, who's actually benefiting from all this technology. So if you look at, like, uh, the NHS app as an example, uh, there's some work we're doing. Please don't tweet about this. Uh, Chatham Lusserop. We actually don't know who's using it. We don't know which region. We don't know which area. We don't know what ethnicity. We don't know what gender. So it could be like a really revolutionary app, but it could be benefiting only a section of society. And if we say, right, uh, our delivery of care is going to be driven primarily through this app, and we don't have a clear idea of who's using it, we might only end up increasing the inequalities that, uh, uh, that exist. So part of the things we need to do when you start developing the technology, say, right, we've put out this technology, who's using it? Who's not using it? Who's accessing it? Who's not accessing it? Then the last thing is uh, <clears throat> a bit uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, who's developing the technology? So 70% uh, of the NHS is female. There are 12 men on the table, and there's only one woman. So for us, some of the work that we do in the race and health observatories is to always say, right, right from the start of the patients who are involved as part of the trial are they representative of the country. The staff who are developing the technology are they representative of the country? Such roundtables, are they representative of the staff? Are they representative of the table? Just look at the list before I say, okay, I'll look. I've got 11 men. You know what? How about you invite a, a few more women? Just some of those things. I think it, it enables us to make sure that everyone benefits from it. I think that's my, my key takeaway, that let's try and make sure that everyone benefits from the technologies. Yeah. So, I mean, fundamentally, they were saying about it, this is making you know, not just the richest hospitals and making sure that um, technology, everybody can benefit and everybody plays a part of that. So, that, I mean, there's many facets to that, including, you know, d digital inclusion. You know, does everybody have a smartphone? And, you know, if we're going down smartphone technology, but it'd be good to get your kind of views on what, you know, what Owen said there and also yeah. from a, I mean, I'm not, perspective. I'm no expert on it, to be fair, but from, from the stats I have read... It's not, as again as I understood it, it's, it's places that aren't necessarily the richest. It's but there is a there is a postcode lottery, absolutely. But I think kind of Salford's one of the um, places where you kind of get a better healthcare, and that's not necessarily one of the richest areas in the country. Um, and again, I guess it's back to it's back to the, the the patients from a geographical point of view. I mean, you're going to be delivering a very different service if you're looking after, you know, the 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 highlands and islands of Scotland than you are if you're looking after kind of central London. And in the nicest sense, if you're focusing on the patient outcome and not necessarily where the money's going and what that what those kind of KPIs are around that money, then you will be spending different amount of money in different areas because you're going to have to provide a completely different level of care if you're you know, having to send a helicopter to the Isle of Jura to get somebody to take it back to a hospital in Glasgow is very different than sending an ambulance from central London to you know, a mile down the road and picking somebody up and taking them to hospital, it's natural. You know, you're going to have inequalities in terms of the amount of money spent. doesn't necessarily have to translate into inequalities in the care that you deliver. 
So it's that again. I think it's that you, what you're measuring. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think it is down to the responsibility of, you know, the the authority, the the mm-hmm. the NHS, the social care providers in that region. Like, like you said, geographically, there might be challenges around how you deliver yeah, more care, things like that. But it's interesting you mentioned, you know, at Salford, and I know that you know Salford Royal as an example have an innovation department. Um, I've actually was fortunate enough to visit there. Yeah. And um, one of the things that struck me when I spoke to one of the leads there was that actually their sole focus is to solve real life problems. And their their mantra was, if it's not solving a problem, we don't look at it. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of a... Same. Uh, we, 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 we think in the same way. If it's yeah. not a real problem, if we're not fixing something that's actually causing anybody, yeah, move on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just coming back to the to the kind of people thing again, um, but this is more from like a, the use of systems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as the NHS has evolved, as social care has evolved, there's a lot of legacy systems in there. There's, you know, and there's, you, you've got this user design. And then when people are being brought in there, you know, there's an expectancy to how people are going to use these systems. Um, that's a burden to train how in it, you know intuitive these systems are. I know that it's something that you've looked to build into radar healthcare in terms of you know how people can interact with the system, how they will be autonomously trained, but without putting words in your mouth. How how would you know what, what does that mean to you, and how have you solved that problem within radar healthcare? Yeah, I mean it's back to that. Yeah, the the problem is you've got high churn rates, big turnover of staff. Staff possibly English isn't necessarily a first language. There, there's, there's a kind of broad brush thing where people go, oh, you know, they're, they're not, they can't use technology, which I disagree with. If I'm honest, I think you know people can, people can use use technology, um, but a new system. If you've never seen it before, it's like anything. You know, we 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 naturally, you know, we're naturally curious in terms of how we explore tech. You know, your phone or something that you're using. You don't tend to go off and read a training manual on how to use a new app or something like that on your phone. And what we try and do is, one, make sure that the task somebody's trying to do is clear and simple and easy to achieve within the product. So that's the first thing. But then we also also support it with inbuilt training. So rather than you going off and have to, having to read a user guide or have somebody having to train you, we have what's called a digital adoption platform. So you can almost get the product to walk you through the tasks you were trying to do in the first place. So, for example, you might want to raise an, uh, let's say you want to raise an incident and you want to raise a fall and you've never done it before. You can literally just go into radar, click on, you know, click on a button, raise a fall, and it'll walk you through all the steps that you need to do. So you literally have never seen the system before in your life. You don't need to have anybody train you. It will walk you through how to, how to complete that task. And that combined with the usability and the design element should mean that actually, not that, the, not that there's no, you know, there's no learning curve, but that learning curve is very much reduced and somebody should just be able to do whatever the task is. The task is, you know, should be as simple as possible. I suppose, do you see then post and implementation, do you see reporting levels increase because now people have greater confidence to do that? Does that does that occur? Uh, yeah, if you look at customers when they come on board, typically you, you might actually see kind of a little bit of a dip to begin with in the first couple of weeks as people kind of, that maybe it's not kind of rolled out. And then you suddenly see like the, the the spike as people start to use the system and start start to report on it. I think there's a there's a couple of things to it from a usability point of view. Obviously, it's easy to report. It's how you're then communicating the fact that you've got this new system out and UI. That is the mechanism for reporting. That tends to be where you see the the drop off. 
I suppose that's and on the, the kind of outcome of that is not only are you managing more effectively, but now you've got a richer data set that you can yeah. then act upon. Does that is that also a, a case? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the point of the the fundamental point of raising these things in the first place is not capturing data for data's sake. Is if you don't have a mechanism behind it where it's helping you learn, understand, and act and implement change so that you reduce whatever the thing is that was being put into the system in the first place, then, you know, that that, that is the entire purpose of what we're doing here, is it to create a system which, you know, feeds back into that loop of going, people are raising it, you want people to be raising as much as possible because that's feeding on knowledge, for want of a better way of describing it, your, you know, your perception of what's happening in your organisation. You're then implementing, you know, ideally things that mitigate whatever those risks were in the first place sharing those learnings. I think when we spoke to the NRLS about that thing of you know, how do I make sure that I share the learnings in the organisation so that I am reducing falls or incidents or whatever, whatever that looks like. I suppose that's it's a nice segue, actually, when we're just thinking about that data. I'm just not summarising what everybody said and the total outcome from the round table, but some yeah. of the key takeaways were we've now got, you know, incredible amounts of data that can be put to work, you know, going to Kate's point. Yeah. We've got systems organizations that don't appear to speak to each other mm -hmm. but possibly have the capability to do so and then we've got a comment from loy during the the round table as well which was um it's taken a pandemic mm. to drive the realization i'm not even going to say it's forced some people to innovate but it's also kind of you know forced some people to realize that innovation is available to adopt it but it'd be uh, interesting to get your kind of views as to how do we, if you take those three key things, we've got lots of data, we've got this interoperability, and mm -hmm. then we've got this kind of what have we learned from the pandemic? How do we, how do we actually move that forward and get? I think again, know, translate that into something real. So, the technical bit of the data and the interoperability. Park that first, and again, I'm going to sound like I'm banging a drum here, but the outcome of what is it you want to know and what difference is it going to make to how you do things differently and then work backwards from that and then understand what information you actually do need or what things do need to speak to each other and rather than it kind of being, you know, we've got all this data, we need to integrate mm -hmm. with everything and we need to you know, throw it all into this big warehouse, data warehouse and we're going to have all, you know, all that you might not even need to do that, what you actually try to fix and then that'll help you understand what it is that you're trying to, or what data you need you know, right the way down to are you capturing that data in the right way in the, in the first place? We see that with our customers. We try and help them visualize and think about the outcomes. So it's about, Radar's about doing things differently as well. It's not about just ticking what system you already had and just, well, now we're going to put it into Radar. If, if that system or those things you were doing were making a difference, then you would have seen a reduction in events and you would have seen, you know, better healthcare, and, but you're not. So actually, how do you how do you start with that? And how do you go? Well, actually, we would deliver. We want to deliver better health for people. We want to deliver a better outcome for these people. And let's pick an example of like reducing falls, for example. If I'm not capturing the data in the right way, that then feeds into things like analytics that can then help you understand what's happening. And then you've got the mechanism again for you know implementing something to prevent it and an understanding again where you've where you think you're making a difference. Did it make a difference? Again, uh, you know, we've put all these things in place. Did it work? Did, you know, that focusing on that that problem helps drive what you need to feed it into it. 
which might be, oh, but to, do, to know this, we do need to, you know, we do need to integrate with something or we do need to capture this information or we do need to bring in this from a different data source. I suppose then that kind of, it's another takeaway that our perception that I've got is that in order for us as radar healthcare to play a part in that, right. then we have to be a part of the discussions. Absolutely, yeah. And again, this is kind of a perception from my perspective is the distance and gap between suppliers, not our partners, because yeah. when you, p you partner with an organisation to help solve them problems, as you've been explaining, then it becomes a very collaborative, you know, engaging process where we become intimate with the outcome, the challenges to make sure they've got something. I think in more the whole journey, mm. so right across um, the NHS, social care, the whole ecosystem, you know, how do you see that suppliers, not just radar healthcare, all suppliers become a part of the discussion? Because it seems to me that if you don't know what innovation is out there, then it's when you're going back to your saying, what is the problem we want to solve? If you're not aware of technology, then maybe you'll try and solve it in a, you know, a labour-intensive way, yeah, for example. Yeah. Or you pick the wrong thing. You, well, yeah, this is the yeah. thing that I know about and I'm aware exactly, of. Exactly, yeah, yeah, what you don't know. So how, how, would we, how do we better engage as an industry, and it and it's two-way, you know, there's parts of suppliers to play and healthcare organisations, the NHS, NHS England, etc. Yeah, I mean, it is a tough one because obviously you've got, you know, us as a supplier, you have others out there who do similar things to us. So it's, you know, how, it's kind of, how do you create a community where actually you're sharing what you're doing in a way that actually you don't have an agenda, I guess. And I think that's probably the tough thing of, you know, how do you create, again, possibly kind of government level, you know, this thing of, well, how do we understand what's out there? How do we understand what is the art of the possible for one of a better way of describing it? Yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer to that one, Paul. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, to be, it's slightly unfair because it's yeah, a yeah. really challenging question. I mean, it, ultimately, I'm asking, what what's the silver bullet, Mark? So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's to be probably a bit less selfish, collaboration, think, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, but again, as, as suppliers in the same space, to be less selfish about what it is that you're doing, which is tough. Yeah, yeah. Something that occurred to me where I, I'd seen big data applied in a really effective, it was the first time I saw big data. Um, I was working in the States, um, up in North Carolina, and um, I got talking to somebody in a bar, and um, he said to me, he was at college and he was mapping out his career, was asking what we did, how did you get into it, those kind of things. And then he showed me an app and this app brought in all the trends and the available jobs and what the salaries were um, across the whole of the US. And so it was saying these are, and then it looked at big industry, political, environmental impacts. And then it had some kind of algorithms that were saying, based on what's happening in the world, these are the trades, industries, jobs, and yeah. things that will become most I've got, relevant. I've got an example now, of once. And, yeah. and basically, it then pushed all this together to then present to, to that person possible courses based on their interests, based on likely jobs that will be available at the time they graduate and come into the working life, mm. um, and universities presenting those courses, and which I thought... It was a really great way. It was the first time I'd seen, ah, that's what big data is. Mm. You know, lots of things to give me, to help me make a simple decision. I thought that was pretty cool. Okay, Matt, so this is normally where I would ask somebody, you know, what's your health, what the health tech moment? Yeah. Um, but 
because of your background, your role, and you know something you've seen where you've seen big data technology applied in a an effective way to solve a kind of problem. Yeah, I mean, I've I've kind of not really I've not worked in healthcare for very long, as you know. Basically, um, come from hospitality industry um, prior. Um, I mean, other than the pandemic, obviously that's kind of a quite a big healthcare moment for me. Um, I think, and, and my example is actually one that didn't work, but it's a good example of how you might look at data and, and, and usage. Um, so it's a it's Google basically, um, and what they were looking to do was they were looking to understand the demand on. Um, I'm going to simplify, but demand on the NHS based on flu outbreaks. And they were looking at people's devices and looking for people searching, have I got the flu? I think I've got the flu symptoms. And using that data to understand, actually, have we suddenly got a spike in flu outbreak in central London, for, for argument's sake? So that, that idea of you know, bringing data in from completely something that you wouldn't even think of, to be fair, you know, somebody Googling, oh, I've got flu symptoms, to help inform the capacity you might need in the NHS trust or A and E or wherever, wherever they, you know, wherever those people will end up, you know, GP, where, wherever. So I think that that was quite an interesting one, and that that way of using data from other areas, bringing that information into a central system somewhere to help you predict what's going on. Again, it's that preventative thing, or at least understanding what resource might I need in future to cope with whatever whatever's happening, because everything that's reactive, isn't it? And and it's very hard to suddenly react when something's going on, yeah. as we saw with COVID when it broke out. Suddenly, you've got a lot of people turning up to hospital. Everybody's completely unaware of it, and you know the, it, it struggled. The system, the system struggled naturally. You know, if you can forewarn of that or get as much notice of that as possible, not saying it wouldn't still struggle, but at least you've got a little bit of an idea about what's coming down the line. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, yeah, it's a great example. I think the ICSs are going to have that challenge. I think, you know, and I hope, and, I, and I'm sure they are, is focusing on prevention as much as, you know, the actual delivery of care. Yeah. Um, thanks for joining. Thank uh, you. Mark, um, and thanks to all our What The Hell Tech listeners. Um, next week, we're talking to Lottie Moore and Lee Davis from Public Policy Projects. Easy for me to say. <laughs> they have been at the forefront of policy debate of the future of social care, and we'll be talking to them about how they promote policy reform their upcoming white papers and how they are continuing to demonstrate policy influence. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions or questions for our guests, please email us at whattheheltech at radarhealthcare.com. Hold up. 